Okay, so this is our Simone Dome reading group. We're continuing our reading of Imagination and Invention, uh, picking up from page 56 of the translation. So we're in part one. Uh, we're at um, section C, the, the beginning of section C um, within part one. Um, so what we looked at last time was the uh, these sort of um, intermediate forms of images. So we had um, a couple weeks ago, we had we looked at um, these images that are formed through fear. Um, and, and so he talked about phobias. And um, there was the example of the, these uh, medieval legends or folk stories about um, toads, you know, spitting venom and so on. Um, and then we also looked at... Uh, sort of the opposite, so the the um, images that have to do with hope, uh, and so in particular, hope of being reunited with our loved ones after death, um, uh, and the sort of images of resurrection that uh, are associated with that hope. And uh, then there are these sort of intermediate images. And so we, he, he points out that these sort of the, the two um, instances of uh, uh, fear and hope are sort of extreme cases. Uh, and in general, our relation to images is one that's uh, a sort of mixture of the two um, or a combination of the two. So we we have um, some idea of what a, a future um, event might be, and we have a, a sort of mixture of um, fear and hope, you know, fear that it might go badly, hope that it would go well. Um, and, uh, and in general, these images that have uh, a sort of mixed um, origin or that that involve both fear and hope uh, have this sort of intermediate um, reality. They, they so the way Simon describes it is they they have um, they're neither transcendent like the the fear images um, nor imminent to the subject like the hope images, but they uh, they sort of at a middle distance uh, in the way in the same way that that um, a rainbow is always uh, just in front of the horizon, no matter how far you go forward. Um, uh, and so these sort of intermediate distance, he gives a few examples of what these kind of intermediate distance images um, consist in or um, would be like. So he talks about uh, celebrity culture. Um, um, so things like um, actors and actresses. Uh, and uh, he, he especially emphasizes the princesses as like this um, sort of fantasy image of um, a world that is you know, connected to our world of everyday life, uh, but also um, sort of separate or distinct from our everyday life. So these are people who are supposed to have some sort of um, superior value or, or some sort of um, uh, priority over the rest of us, um, even though they, you know, live in our worlds, um, you know, they have to eat and drink and so on like the rest of us. But uh, um yeah, they have this sort of uh, fantastical nature or this uh, um, sort of um, legendary quality about them that the rest of us don't have. And then <clears throat> he, and then sort of developing further that uh, kind of legendary side of things, he looks at um, uh, folk tales um, and um, the kinds of uh, sort of transformations that occur in these folk tales. So you have like the uh, the story with the uh, toad that can turn back into a prince, or you have Sleeping Beauty who can be reawakened by the prince's um, ardent desire, um, and uh, and then 
Um, there's also, uh, again, in, in sort of folk tales, we have the, um, the Cinderella story where um, the servant girl who is sort of despised and, um, uh, you know, no one really cares about um, takes on the value or uh, can, can turn into the princess. Uh, and then the, the slipper is sort of the, the symbol of, um, of her uh, capacity for metamorphosis and transformation. So, uh, and, and then again, uh, Simon is using a symbol here in his specific sense that we talked about last time. So it's a, a sort of complementary reality. So uh, it, it's one piece uh, that fits with another and they together form a whole. Um, and then the other, the last set of examples that Simonon looked at of this intermediate reality um, had to do with um, amateurism or um, sort of do-it-yourself uh, culture. Um, and so we talked about how in the sort of DIY world, there are these ideas of um, kind of infinite possibility or limitless capacity for um, for um transformation or or you know the, the idea that you can start with anything you can imagine and then you can create it using the the you know set of tools and materials that you uh that you have and so he talks about how uh the equipment that is marketed to diy people um uh, often is marketed as specifically having this kind of flexibility that you can use it on any kind of material you can use any kind of uh power source etc um, and, uh, and he, so he points out that this sometimes is, is not even really a functional flexibility. Like the, the tool itself is not, um, as, as effective as a more specialized tool would be. Um, but it's this sort of, um, affective value of flexibility that is, is marketed to the DIY enthusiast. Uh, and so, yeah, so these, um, objects that the DIY person uses, um, have this sort of uh, reality as a, a kind of virtuality. They, they, their value consists in the possibility of um, always being transformed or, um, you know, fitting in it, into any situation as opposed to like a, a sort of um, set of properties that they would actually have. It's instead what they could be that, um, that is sort of valuable about them. Uh, okay. So that, yeah, that's uh, what we saw last time. And um yeah, so this time we're going to go on to the third phase of the first uh, level of the general cycle of the image. So we're looking at um, the uh, anticipatory role of the image in reflexive thought, essentially. Um, so yeah, uh, if, if I can get a volunteer to read the first, uh, yeah, let's read the full subsection one uh, up to the, the section break there. Uh, I can read. Um... C, intuition is pure a priori image, principle of reflective knowledge. Subsection 1, the projection schema in Platonism, the role of intuition. The intuition of amplificatory projection from current potentialities may serve as basis for reflective operation, whereby the subject is installed in the unicity of the source movement in order to intuitively accompany uh, the differentiation in the multiple and in the, the successive becoming of this intention or initial force. Such a vision is at least partially initiatory or mystical, even if it uses the power of conceptual structures as a relay. As a principle of philosophical thought, the a priori image is the idea rather than the concept. It is even more purely unconditional and more thoroughly unique than ideas. 
ideas which are multiple in a certain aspect play a role in amplificatory projection, which is not that of the source of the projection. Behind ideas as primordial origin of projection, there exists beyond essence and existence, the one source of all projections, analogous to the sun, which in the sensible world lights up objects, allowing them to bear a shadow, which amplifies them, multiplies them, but also degrades them. In the Platonic doctrine, the excellence and superiority of the good with respect to becoming and the multiple cannot be understood without an essential postulate. The good is the source of intelligibility and participation in the intelligible world. It is the sun of the intelligible world. It lights up archetype ideas. Existence is a direct projection of essences in the intelligible world, a demiurge for the passage of the intelligible into the sensible. Knowledge retraces the steps followed by projection or demiurgic imitation. This is what provides the full meaning of the myth of the cave. From the shadows and reflections of the world of Genesis and Thora, which is to say, from the most multiplied and inconsistent images of projection, it is possible to behold the models themselves and the source of projection, granted one turnaround forcefully. This method of conversion, used analogically in the paradigm of the sensible, also applies to the path of knowledge in the intelligible world, where in the intelligible world, where it allows one to reach through successive stages of purification and initiation, the end of a dialectic in the antechamber of the good. Knowledge moves upstream from this projection through successive degrees, which gives sensorially perceptible existence. It may seem paradoxical to, con- to consider the Platonic theory of participation as expressing a primordial image of pure movement, since it presents itself foremost as an example of a contemplative theory. However, we must grasp this theory of knowledge from the purview of an experience of progressive degradation of an original model through the more or less distant and various various images that may represent that model, becoming more indistinct the more distant they are from the primordial reality, like copies of copies or reflections of reflections. In shadow projection, thaumaturgy, the shadow becomes larger the more distant it is from the model casting the shadow. Uh, Sorry, the model casting the shadow, but it also becomes fuzzier because projection from a light source proceeds according to the principle of proportional triangles. The ancients did not know optical systems allowing the production of punctuality, nor did they know that a light source small enough to be treated as a geometrical point nor did they know a light source small enough to be treated as a geometrical point, which would have rendered sharpness independently of the magnifying relation. The relation of model to copy is the basis of participation. Should I finish this section? Uh, Yeah, maybe actually we can stop here. Yeah, it's a bit longer than I thought. Um, Yeah, let's let's stop here, um, because this is a a little bit dense uh, for those who may not um, be familiar with um, Plato's theory of the good. Um, But yeah, so this... um, so this is a uh, drawing from the Republic. Um, there's the famous passage where um, um, the the doctrine of the the forms is outlined, and then there's this idea that uh, so the forms are um, uh, of course we have uh, forms of um, uh, you know a human being. Uh, um, I don't know any any sort of object. There's a, a form that that corresponds to the essence of that object. Um, but then Plato, or um, in the guise of Socrates, argues that um, there's this uh, principle of the good, which is um, above the forms or above the ideas. And uh, the, the good is comparable to 
the sun uh, in the physical world um, and and um, the, the sort of um, gener generation uh, of physical objects or um, objects that have physical existence uh, from the ideas is comparable to the way that uh, a shadow is projected by a light source, whether it's the sun or a, a lantern or something. Um, so there's the famous cave analogy where um, the uh, shapes are, uh, so you have a light source uh, and then some shapes, and then you have um, some people chained to the wall that are facing uh, another wall where the light is projected um, and the shadows of the uh, of the shapes are are um, projected onto the wall. Uh, and so here the light source is the equivalent or the um, representative of the good, the this principle of the good. And then the um, shapes are the um, correspondence of the essences uh, or the ideas or the forms. Uh, and then the um, shadows projected onto the wall are the uh, equivalent here of the uh, physical objects. So the the sort of um, theory of the um, creation or the the genesis of these physical objects is that the idea of the good sort of um, projects through uh, the ideas, and uh, then the physical objects are these sort of um, copies or shadows of the ideas. So they have a, a lesser degree of reality than the ideas. And so this is why um, the realm of the physical is uh, is a, a realm of uh, becoming and never of being. Uh, so physical entities are always uh, arising and passing away and, and are not, uh, they never are fully what they are. Um, so there's nothing sort of perfectly exemplifies the form of a human being, but um, there's always becoming and passing away. Uh, and so this is the sort of general picture of uh, the, the doctrine of the forms and the good that uh, is outlined in the Republic. Um, and what Simon Dong is arguing here is that uh, we have to uh, understand this doctrine as having to do with a motor image. Um, and, and the idea is that, and we'll see a little bit more as we continue in this section, but um, the idea is that to understand this sort of um, schema of thought that Plato is outlining, we have to place ourselves in the position of the uh, light source of you know the sun or the principle of the good. And then we sort of imagine ourselves proceeding outwards from that source. Uh, and um, and so the, the passage from the source of light uh, past the shapes onto the shadows projected on the wall is a, a kind of um, process of degradation of reality. So it's a, it's a constant, uh, each sort of step of the progression is at a lower degree of reality than the preceding one. And, uh, and so Simon Dong points out that this is maybe somewhat uh, paradoxical for someone who um, you know, is acquainted with Plato and the idea that uh, our, our knowledge is always knowledge of what is and not of what becomes. Um, and, and so Plato is always contrasting the forms as these perfect, um, uh, eternal, immutable realities with the realm of uh, coming to be and passing away. Uh, and, and so it's, it's a sort of paradox to, to treat this um, doctrine of the forms as having to do with motion. Uh, but then, yeah, so Simon Dong argues that we are sort of grasp of this picture involves this uh, motor image, uh, even though the... Um, 
the content of the doctrine has to do with um, the immutable forms and the eternal reality of, of the good and so on. Um, our, our grasp of this doctrine is through this motor image of situating ourselves in the position of the, of the principle of the good and then proceeding outwards. Uh, so yeah, it's a, a bit of a, um, uh, a reinterpretation. Uh, I mean, it's, it's fairly traditional in some senses, but also it sort of uh, concretizes the uh, interpretation of Plato here in that we actually have to sort of um, create an image of what it, is, what it would be to, um, to situate yourself in this doctrine and so to yeah come up with a, a sort of imagistic account of the understanding of this doctrine. Uh, he uses the terms procession and conversion in this section, which are terms that he also used in the history of the notion of the individual um, in volume two of individuation. And I went back and looked at some of my notes, and it seems like the first use of those terms in that uh, in volume two was in relation to in a discussion of the western christian heresies um and i i think the idea of procession is that there's this continual uh, continuous process of of degradation where true concentration or true creation is sort of concentrated at like the origin of the process and then in conversion um Conversion, he initially associated with like individual um, salvation, as opposed to through the mediation of the community. Um, but it I, it seems like in volume two, procession is associated with an isolation of the individual. I think just because the individual is never at the origin as a created individual, whereas conversion allows for a kind of direct connection between. The individual and the source of creation. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for um, going back to uh, individuation and, and bringing that um, back in. And, and I think I think here the um, the distinction between procession and conversion. I think we can think of it in terms of uh, whether the relationship to the uh, original principle, whichever you know, whatever exactly a particular system um, takes to be the sort of originating principle. Uh, is what the question is whether the relation to that original principle is continuous or discontinuous? I think is um, is sort of the fundamental um, difference between procession and conversion as he outlines it in uh, in individuation volume two. Um, so in procession, we have some sort of uh, the the sort of ontological schema that we work with is that there's some sort of fundamental principle. Um, you know, whether it's the good or the one or whatever other principle we want to start with. Uh, and then there's a sort of uh, continuous descent of uh, a hierarchy of degrees of reality from that uh, original principle. So the, the original principle has like the sort of uh, uh, maximum degree of reality. And then there's a, a continuous descent of degrees of reality from there. And then uh, what that the sort of uh, consequence of this doctrine um, is that we as individual philosophers have the capacity to sort of ascend, to reascend that um, that uh, hierarchy of degrees of being. Uh, and so this is a, a sort of contemplative doctrine where, um, and it's a, a kind of elitist doctrine in the sense that um, the philosophers are the elite who are capable of reascending towards the, uh, the original principle, um, though they can never sort of 
fully attain that um, complete uh, return to the original principle, but they can uh, ascend the hierarchy of, of degrees of being and um, get closer and closer to the, the original principle. Uh, whereas, you know, the rest of, of humanity is sort of stuck at whatever level that they find themselves at. And then the um, conversion idea is that there's a sort of discontinuity of, um, uh, or there's there's the capacity for a kind of jump in the scale of being. Uh, so you, and, and you know, again, um, in, in relation to uh, Christian doctrine, uh, there's the idea that um, you can, you know, undergo the process of conversion and um, uh, you sort of go from a state of uh, damnation to a state of salvation um, and not, not not by sort of passing through all the intermediate degrees, but through a, a sort of jump to a higher level of, uh, of reality. Um, and um, this doctrine uh, tends to be, so a, a doctrine of conversion, I, I don't know if it's sort of a necessary uh, consequence, but um, it tends to be um, a sort of universalist doctrine. So anyone can um, can go from a state of damnation to a state of salvation um, by repenting and uh, you know accepting the true faith and so on. Um, you you can you know no matter what state you're in, no matter how low your degree of uh, reality is, you can always uh, undergo this conversion and um, find yourself in a higher state of ontological validity or, or consistency or whatever. Um, and, and so um, as opposed to the sort of elitist doctrine of the um, uh, procession uh, tradition, we instead have a, a sort of universalist doctrine um, in the conversion tradition. And um, this often also, so in addition to sort of being universalist at the individual level, so every individual can convert. Um, it also often has to do with a, a sort of communal um, uh, inheritance um, um, so that you, like the process of conversion is uh, a, a process or the, the event of conversion um, is a, an event of sort of joining to a, an existing community, um, so a church or something similar. Uh, and um, it's this sort of union with the community or, or joining the community that allows you to um, achieve salvation and, you know, redeem your uh, low ontological state. Uh, and so, yeah, so Simon Doe outlines these two sort of um, um, opposite or uh, contrary uh, traditions of, uh, of thought uh, or these two schemas of thought uh, that uh, sort of interact in the late uh, antiquity worlds. Um, and um, yeah, so here in relation to Plato, um, the Platonic doctrine is, um, uh, well, actually, he, he, he sort of gives us both um, sides uh, in different, different places. You know, again, in Plato, it's always difficult to say what exactly is, you know, Plato's doctrine and whether it changes and, you know, whether what Socrates says is, is sort of a, a representation of Plato's actual doctrine and so on. But um, in different places, we have um, a sort of idea that um, there's a kind of ascetic um, ascent towards uh, the forms and and the the principle of the good. So we we sort of gradually um, purify ourselves to uh, sort of return to this level of knowledge of uh, of the forms. Um, and then there's also more like a conversion doctrine um, where we um, 
we have a sort of sudden transformation uh, where we um, turn away from the the realm of becoming and we uh, turn our attention instead towards the the forms and the principle of the good. So like in the cave story, the prisoner uh, sort of breaks the chains and then returns, uh, turns around and um, contemplates the forms and the, the, the principle of the good instead of looking at the uh, shadows on the wall. So there's a, a kind of discontin- discontinuity uh, it's not just a, a c- continual progression towards uh, purification. Um, so Plato gives us both uh, sort of stories uh, and how exactly they fit together is probably a, a difficult question of Plato interpretation that um, we don't really need to get into. But um, yeah, so there are these two sort of accounts of the relationship between the individual and the sort of central principle of being uh, and both of them are working in, in different aspects or different parts of Plato's doctrine. Uh, okay, so let's go on um, to the rest of this subsection. So I think we are at uh, the bottom of page 57, the relation of model to copy. Uh, if someone would like to pick up from there. I can read it if nobody's in. Yeah, sure, go ahead. The relation of model to copy is the basis of participation. This relation is akin to that of being to becoming, of the one to the multiple and finally of essence to existence within the sensible. The sensible, the indistinct, and the multiple are on the side of the copy, while the model possesses the unity of uniqueness and the perfection of intelligible essence. The passage from the perfect, intelligible essence to existence through generation and corruption is analogous, as demiurgic copy, to the projection that degrades and distances. The philosophical dialectic, which leads back up to the intelligible, allows one to become a spectator of the demiurgy that projects existences. Instead of staying between the taumaturges and the screen, eyes turn towards the wall where the shadows are cast. It places us between the light source and the stage, where the taumaturges brandish the silhouettes that cast the shadows. Philosophical knowledge is a gaze that accompanies the projection in the process of making itself, and the demiurgy in the process of occurring by no longer staying among the copies and existences in becoming, but very close to the source itself, whence come light rays in their unity. Philosophical contemplation is not a participation in the demiurgic activity. It is the intuition of the movement of the rays being projected. It thereby installs the mind, l'esprit, as it is said of the good, beyond essence and existence. That is to say, at the source, well before the cast shadows, existences, and before even the models, essences, essences. In Illuminism, the contemplative gaze goes in the direction of the light rays projecting existence. The subject of the gaze coincides with the unity of what of which they emanate. The highest philosophical initiation is thus not only a knowledge of the models, ideas, but a mode of being that makes the philosopher coincide with the absolute source of forms and existences. It is indeed the intuition of anticipation in a pure state that is sought in this turn back towards the most unconditional principle, the most complete and radical a priori, the most anterior to any mode of being. It is not movement, but the intuition of all projections towards existence and the multiple. Right, so this is what I was uh, talking about earlier. So to grasp this doctrine of the forms uh, and to sort of understand how the forms are generated, um, we sort of 
imagine ourselves into the position of the principle of the good, and then we imagine the movement outwards, uh, you know, past the the shapes uh, that constitute the forms, um, um, and uh, and how the and then we we uh, project onto the wall. So we we go from the principle of the good to the forms to the um, entities in the the world of becoming that uh, that reflect the forms or that um, are uh, copies of the forms. So we um, we have this sort of motor schema, this sort of abstract idea, uh, this abstract image of movement um, that uh, that we use to grasp this doctrine of um, of uh, how the realities in the realm of becoming arise from the ideas by means of this uh, principle of the good. And here talking about the processioning and conversion um, sort of dichotomy. Uh, so Simon Dole is emphasizing here the uh, conversion side. So the prisoner has to turn around. There's this sort of discontinuity between the sort of uh, the realm of opinion where we um, make, uh, you know, correct statements or incorrect statements about the, um, the shadows on the wall. Uh, there's this realm of opinion, and then we have to sort of uh, tear ourselves away from this realm of opinion and turn around and face the um, the um, uh, the projection, uh, the light source projecting outwards. We have to sort of face the forms and um, uh, yeah, disconnect ourselves from the realm of opinion, the realm of becoming, and uh, and turn towards the realm of true uh, eternal being. Um, so yeah, so Simon is emphasizing the discontinuous aspect, but then the other side uh, is that um, in Plato we always have this doctrine of uh, a kind of practice of the dialectic, um, so that you know Socrates is always going around asking people questions, and uh, as he puts it, he's he's trying to learn uh, from others, but um, in the process he generally shows that they actually don't know what they claim to know. Um, uh, but there's this constant practice of dialectic and this constant sort of purification of the soul. Um, we we are never sort of fully. Uh, it, it's not just um, it's not just the case of sort of um, undergoing a conversion once and for all. Um, but it's a case of constantly um, purifying your soul and uh, sort of uh, separating yourself gradually and uh through constant discipline from the realm of opinion and becoming uh so um yeah the other side of the doctrine is there in plato as well even though simon don't hear is emphasizing the sort of conversion aspect so um my question is like a platonic idea of the good yeah. uh as far as i understand that uh, the um the idea of goodness actually indicates um, a perfect and eternal and permanent kind of um, unchangeable, some kind of idea, right? And then it's kind of like a top-down approach about the being, as far as I understand. And then Simongdong actually um, is against like a plural, right? And then what he tries to explain to explain here is kind of uh, if he accepts platonic idea, uh, to what extent? Then um, the multiple copies can be understood as kind of conversion. Uh, the form of a conversion, like something like that, by doing that, he can give some kind of singularity to the uh, so-called multiple copies, right? So the, my, my first question is the basic position of Simon Dong 
Uh, he's against the Plato, right? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think he's so much against um, Plato's doctrine here, but he wants to sort of grasp what is the, um, like, what is the image governing Plato's doctrine? Uh, so the, the idea here as a sort of strategy of interpretation is to take what Plato describes in uh, a sort of mythical form, you know, the, this myth of the cave, um, and sort of grasp what is the um, image structure of this myth. So what sort of, um, uh, if we sort of strip away the, the contingent aspects, you know, the, the fact that it's a cave and so on, and sort of grasp the, um, the core of this story, what, what exactly, what kind of images are um, at work in this story. Uh, and Simon Doe's argument here, or what, what he says that we can grasp as the core of this story, is precisely this um, motor image of starting from the position of the good and proceeding outwards. Um, and uh, so, so what Simon Doe is doing here is not so much sort of arguing for or against Plato's doctrine is, is instead trying to give an account of it in terms of the image and where it fits into the cycle of the image. Um, so he's, he's essentially saying that Plato has uh, grasped one piece of that cycle of the image, uh, it, you know, this sort of reflective uh, phase of the um, uh, anticipatory level. Um, so if, if we remember that cycle of the phases and levels, so this is the third phase of the first level, um, or sorry, no, the third level of the first phase. I, I mixed those up, but um, uh, but yeah, it's um, it's the um, anticipatory phase of the reflective level. So it's um, when we sort of think about what we're doing when we anticipate uh, in our uh, imagery. Um, so that's that's sort of what Simon Doe is doing here, uh, as opposed to like arguing for or against Plato's doctrine. Uh, uh, probably I I have never thought of like uh, uh, the part like the origin of all all the beings, like how Simon Dong uh, conceived that part. But uh, according to this part, in a way, like he seems to agree that there could have been there could be some kind of original form, like. He, he, it is called here that the good form, the good. Uh, so like the other other copies, like uh, derived from the original form, at least Simongdong accepts then the idea. Is it? Um, yeah. Like, so I don't know if he wants to accept this idea as sort of his own idea, but he wants to um, sort of um, he wants to take what Plato's story depicts. Um, and show like what aspect of reality is it that Plato is um, uh, grasping through this story? Uh, so he he takes it that Plato, you know, is not um, sort of completely wrong. He's not just making things up. He he did sort of grasp something about the way that um, reality works in in general. Um, but we want to sort of uh, figure out which aspect in particular that. Uh, story grasps and how that aspect fits with other aspects of reality. So that's this is what the, the whole cycle of the image is supposed to do. Is supposed to uh, allow us to situate these different aspects of reality in relation to each other. And I think this becomes more uh, clear with the next two sections where it moves through Blotinus and um, Bergson, where he basically develops 
a continuity between uh, well, Plato, Plotinus, and uh, Bergson in their conceptions of um, intuition and the role that it plays in philosophy, um, and basically uh, tries to find a thread between those that is useful for his project. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, so he's he's sort of identifying this uh, uh, sort of hidden unity. Um, so, he, I mean, just as a sort of um, surface level history of philosophy, you wouldn't take uh, Daxan and Plato to be sort of representatives of something uh, the same. You know, Daxan is all is all about movement and uh, uh, duration, um, and then Plato is you know known as the theorist of the uh, immutable eternal forms. So they they seem to be sort of contrary to each other. But Simondo identifies this sort of shared um, image or this shared motor image um, element that is sort of uh, continuous from Plato down to Bergson. Um, and uh, yeah, so you have this uh, sort of hidden continuity um, in the history of philosophy. And so he wants to grasp, you know, situate this, uh, you know, aspect of reality that is being grasped in this tradition in relation to other aspects of reality um, that are grasped by other philosophical traditions. And yeah, we'll see that throughout the rest of the lectures. But um, I think, yeah, the project is like, you know, if we start from the assumption that Plato, um, you know, was was grasping something uh, true or you know, there's something true about the story of, of the, the cave, um, there's a, a real aspect of, of the world or of existence that he's grasping. We want to understand what exactly it is, you know, how, how we can express the content of that story um, and then situate that story in relation to um, other stories that, you know, might seem to be contradictory or um, different than, than, than that story and uh, see how they all sort of fit together. Thanks. Um, okay, so let's go on to, yeah... Um, Let's read, maybe we'll just read subsection two, because again, this is somewhat dense. Uh, so it's a, just one paragraph, if I can get a volunteer to read that one for us. Uh, let me read. Yeah, sure, thanks. To the procession uh, conversion. The second path is possible in the use of the intuition of anticipation, that which Plotinus uh, uses to rise towards the one, superior to all hypothesis. Contemplation is prepared by exercises, reading texts, conversation, but it is conducted in reflection and silence. After contemplation, which is like an ecstasy, the mind, l'esprit, expresses what it has seen in words and discourses. Discourse. Plotinus compares contemplation to the moment when geometers, uh, after having thought, can see, and after seeing, they write and trace the figure of the solution. In other words, revelatory contemplation is the starting point of speech, of explanation, and the gesture of communication. Knowledge is a conver conversion that leads to the point where one can seize the procession that organizes existences from the one. In this doctrine, too, intuition provides knowledge because it is effectuated at the end of an ascent that allows an absolute anticipation to be recovered and the world to be grasped, grasped as a procession in a state that is complete a priori in relation to any deployment of sensorial experience in temporary existence. 
Right. So here, um, Simon Rao is applying the same kind of strategy to Plotinus as he did to Plato. Um, and Plotinus, of course, is a, a Neoplatonist uh, from, I think, the third century AD, something like that. Um, 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 but yeah, um, so he's writing uh, several centuries after Plato, but he's trying to, he, what he, he takes it that he's sort of reviving the Platonic doctrine. Um, um, and um, yeah, so he, he uh, tries to like systematize uh, Plato's doctrine, um, but he, in doing so, he, you know, sort of transforms it as well. Um, and um, in, in Plotinus, there's this idea of uh, contemplation as the goal of knowledge. Um, so we, we are, are sort of, uh, and not just of knowledge, but of life in general. Uh, so we're always sort of oriented towards um, trying to contemplate the good. Um, and um, uh, so again, there's this procession and conversion side, um, sort of duality that Simon Do talked about. Um, and for Plotinus, it's the procession side that dominates. Um, so we are always trying to reascend that hierarchy of being. So everything, um, everything is sort of generated out of the principle of the good. Um, and uh, um, yeah, and then everything, uh, and then our, our sort of goal in life is to reascend that hierarchy uh, and, uh, you know, get... Uh, that, that vision of the good as much as, as possible. Um, yeah, and so, um, again, there's a, a sort of contrast with Plato because it's it's no longer uh, a kind of um, uh, sort of turning around um, moment and uh, this sort of immediate um, transformation. Uh, it's instead this kind of um, sense towards the good. But then we also have this these sort of moments, uh, and I think Porphyry says that uh, Plotinus had like three instances in his life where he had this sort of perfect contemplation of the good. Um, um, so yeah, we you have these sort of moments of perfect unity with the principle of the good, and um, but they're they're very rare. Even someone who is sort of devoted to contemplating the good only has a few occasions in their life where they you know achieve this perfect unity. Um, yeah, so. Uh, a similar type of image uh, sort of processed, but um, now with a, a different emphasis in Plotinus as opposed to Plato. Um, did Plotinus, was he, I don't know very much about him. Was he talking about meditation or was it uh, some kind of intellectual, mystical union with the good? Yeah, it's not um, entirely clear, I think, um, what exactly this practice consists in. Like he, he does talk about... Um, so there's, of course, sort of intellectual arguments. Um, you, you have to, you know, read Plato's texts and, um, you know, discuss what it means and, you know, uh, um, argue against, uh, like there's a, a Plotinus text against Gnosticism, for example. Um, the, so he's against the doctrine that the world is created by an evil demiurge. Um, so you have to argue against uh, false doctrines and so on. So there's a sort of rational intellectual side um, but then at the same time, the um, this sort of perfect unity with the good is something that is beyond uh, sort of purely intellectual or, or yeah, so the, the, the level of the intellect is the level of the forms. Um, but then you have to ascend beyond the level of the intellect and the forms to, um, to the level of um, the union with the good. 
Um, so that's sort of higher than the level of the intellect. And uh, um, yeah, so it's um, it's not, you know, it, again, it's a, it's a sort of mystical rationalism, I guess. Like you, you have this realm of intellectual knowledge, but then you have to ascend beyond that to achieve this kind of mystical um, union with the good. Uh, and like any mystical doctrine, it's hard to... Um, you know, explain exactly what this union consists in. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's um, uh, sort of a combination of the the sort of rational uh, argument level and then ascending beyond that level to um, this union with the good. Yeah, and for those who uh, are maybe listening after and are, are not um, here in the session live, we're in the chat and there's a, an ongoing discussion about um, some of the connections with uh, Buddhist doctrine, um, so this idea of, um, uh, especially in Zen Buddhism, this idea of sudden enlightenment uh, and how that connects with this idea of conversion um, and uh, the idea that there's this um, Buddha nature in everything um, that that has to sort of be, uh, and again, I, I don't know this very well, so maybe someone else can uh, correct me here, but the idea is sort of that you have to um, release or um, uh, allow the Buddha nature to manifest itself uh, as opposed to sort of um, uh, achieving um, enlightenment. It, it's, it's already there. It, you have to just sort of um, allow it to, uh, to, um, to manifest itself as opposed to um, being sort of hidden the way it is now. There's, uh, there's a long history of, I guess, what's, what's the word? Theological dispute over, uh, buddha nature and enlightenment um the major division you see is uh in the in the zen or chan tradition between what's called the northern school and the southern school and the northern school sort of believed in uh gradual enlightenment whereas the southern school believed in sudden enlightenment but even sort of the southern school's sudden enlightenment was uh accompanied by an idea of of cultivation where this sort of uh work that one does isn't necessarily progressing enlightenment in any way but sort of fertilizing the ground from which sudden enlightenment may spring right yeah so i think that fits i mean again not something i know very well but i think that fits with this idea that procession and conversion are these sort of dual uh, or two sides of the of, a, of the same coin that they sort of fit together in some sense. Um, so, like in Plato, we have both aspects. We have the 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 conversion and the procession aspect at the same time, and and you know different um, emphases in different uh, dialogues or different um, parts of a dialogue. So, yeah, I think it makes sense to to see um, both the gradual sort of this this idea that you sort of gradually have to work or this sort of constant progression on the one hand um and the idea that there's a sudden transformation um that they probably both sort of fit together or that um any individual doctrine is probably likely to have both aspects even if it emphasizes one over the other yeah now that i think of it the southern the southern school um sudden enlightenment school of chan buddhism kind of sounds like stoicism in the sense that uh the like becoming or achieving wisdom and stoicism is this sort of threshold effect where it's all or nothing rather than a, a gradual uh perfection you can be like you know one 
uh, one degree away from achieving wisdom in stoicism and, and still be just as unwise as somebody who's never worked towards it at all, at least in my understanding. Yeah, I think um, in logic of sense, Deleuze illuminates some parallels between Stoicism and Zen Buddhism. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. he talks about um, the role of the koan as um, kind of um, um, similar to some of the logical paradoxes in, in certain ways that uh, the Stoics looked at. Um, um, yeah, and so the Stoic, this doctrine of the sort of threshold effect of, of wisdom um, is something that Simon Rowe talked about in that history of the notion of the individual text. Um, so there's the idea um, that um, uh, wisdom in the Stoic sense is uh, a kind of um, resonance with the with the the rest of the world, or a har harmony with the rest of the world. So you have to, um, everything has a certain sort of ratio, uh, and then you have to sort of find the right ratio where you fit in with everything else. And and um, so again, like in the in harmony. There's there's no such thing, or or there's not really such a thing as like approximate harmony. Like you're either in tune or you're not in tune. Uh, even if you're like slightly out of tune, you're still out of tune. Um, and um, um, yeah, so this sort of resonance effect is is a, a kind of threshold. So you have to actually meet that exact um, uh, sort of quality of harmony with the world um, to to sort of uh, be. Uh, to count as being a, a wise or a, a sage, um, and uh, yeah, so it's it's a an all or nothing effect as opposed to like sort of gradually ascending in wisdom or gradually purifying your soul or something along those lines. Um, uh, you either um, achieve that harmony with the world or you don't. Um, so yeah, I think uh, again we can think of this in terms of um, um, this duality that Simondo outlines between procession and conversion. So in, in Buddhism, like the ultimate goal uh, to get to the nirvana, the state of nirvana, is that kind of more like a let it, let it go? I mean, um, kind of liberation from the old kind of sufferings. Uh, I, I understood that, uh, the nirvana that way. Then is that kind of opposite kind of way of being? Like uh, think about Plato, like every being should do, uh, make an effort to, to, to reach the, the, the state of uh, the good. But it's kind of like a bound to uh, that kind of ultimate, how do I say, being, the, I mean, the original being. But uh, in the case of a Buddhism, I, I, I think that's kind of like a convert. I mean, the opposite, opposite kind of direction. Am I wrong? Hmm. Yeah, maybe uh, Ben or Angus, uh, you you both have more knowledge of, of Buddhism than, than I do. Maybe you can um, answer this as well. But um, I think um, I think it probably depends on the different Buddhist schools or traditions, um, like where what relationship we might want to see them having to Platonism uh, or to Plato's doctrine. Um, um, but I think this sort of um, gradual procession versus sudden conversion duality and you know the way they interact with each other is something that we can um probably identify in different doctrines so that um even if there are obviously uh, of course you know uh even if we want to compare stoicism and and zen or or other you know uh sort of parallels that we see between between uh buddhism and uh greek philosophy uh of course we're not saying that they um sort of agree on everything but we 
um, at least in in the sense of this duality of, of gradual procession and sudden conversion, we can sort of identify the same structure, even if um, the doctrines uh, in other respects might be different. Um, so yeah, I think that um, I think that's what I would want to say without sort of um, uh, you know venturing too much into um, Buddhist interpretation that I don't know a lot about. Uh, the, the only thing I would like to would like to briefly add is like uh, um, the, uh, about the origin like of being so actually like a sudden alignment or or gradual alignment that's the way of meditation. Uh, if we, we put it apart, put it aside, the um, the Buddha like uh, maybe like uh, thinks of uh, the world as nothing. Like it's like a kind of bottom up, like a like a science like approach. Maybe like a as a loop, right? Uh, am I wrong? Uh, anyhow, like a, uh, previously, like I mentioned, as a previous mentioned, and Bergson part, the next part would you explain more. But what I think is like a plural and then proteinous, uh, bo- both are uh, focused on um, at the at the at the birth of the 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 world or universe. There is an absolute being, like alien, like like something perfect was there, uh, but there. Uh, Buddha or other kind of philosopher would think a different way. Like there's a, some kind of nothing, nothing, not, not the even absolute being, something like that. So we should go back to the nothing. That's kind of the idea of nirvana, something like that. So going back to the our textbook, what what I really am wondering is that why Plato like uh, set up some kind of the idea of the kind of so so called absolute being or the good or the idea, something like that. That that's kind of really interesting part. Yeah, and I think uh, it again has to do with sort of um, different, um, I guess, intuitions or different starting points, right? Um, um, like a different, you know, intellectual system starts from a different, um, um, I guess, intuition. Uh, so there, there might be sort of shared images that reoccur in different um, intellectual systems, like in uh, certain schools of Buddhism and certain schools of Greek philosophy, there might be sort of shared images or shared um, image schemas, even if the sort of overall starting point is very different. Like, yeah, as you pointed out, so in, in Plato, we have this idea of like um, uh, this sort of absolute reality, the 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 realm of, well, the, we have the realm of the ideas and then the good, which is um, beyond being. Um, yeah, so... Um, and this is is sort of opposite, or in some sense at least, appears to be opposite to some of the Buddhist doctrines about um, emptiness of of things and so on. Um, but um, yeah, so there's um, um, maybe different directions or different starting points, um, even if we can also see some shared images. So I think the like searching for these shared images doesn't mean that the intellectual systems as a whole are the same. Um, there, there can be very different intellectual systems, even if there's like one sort of shared structure of imagery that they both use. I think in, in difference and repetition, Deleuze points out that um, at the base of Platonism, um, there is a moral desire to distinguish between the true and the false, right? The real distinction that Plato is after is the, uh, the distinction between the Sorry, I'm not sure how, what the proper English translations are, but like the the true images and the simulacra, right? And the whole theory of the ideas that are illuminated by the good um, is is 
is a tool to facilitate that that um, that that distinction, which is uh, ultimately a moral approach. Yeah, and I think yeah. So um, in that text, um, Deleuze emphasizes the uh, sort of dichotomy method that Plato uses. Um, so in the Sophist, in particular, he he gives us these. Um, I think they're meant to be somewhat comical, but um, these sort of genealogies of um, the sophists. Uh, so the sophist is a kind of hunter uh, that hunts um, that hunts um, rich young men, as opposed to a, a hunter who hunts, uh, um, you know, land animal, deer, or whatever. Um, but um, yeah, so there's like, and and then he uh, he gives different genealogies or different sort of. Um, uh, ways of dividing. So you always start with one concept and you divide it into two and the, the entity that you're seeking, the sophist, um, will be in one of those two halves and then you divide that half in two and you keep dividing until you find the right definition. But um, And then, of course, the whole um, sort of problem of the sophist is that um, each time you, you feel like you have arrived at a definition of the sophist, you realize that... Um, uh, the sophist sort of eludes your grasp because there's there's this role of non-being of the sophist, uh, and then th that sort of leads to the whole doctrine of how non-being is uh, in some respect uh, in in the sophist. Um, but yeah, so this this sort of Platonic uh, method of dichotomy is always about distinguishing um, the false pretender. Um, so the sophist in this case from the true uh, reality. And, and so this would be the philosopher um, who sort of uh, actually um, uh, relates to the forms or, or has knowledge of the forms and, and, uh, uh, in, and the principle of the good. Um, so yeah, this sort of moral project of distinguishing the false pretender from the true, um, the true representative um, is quite distinct from uh, various Buddhist traditions, like the project in the different Buddhist traditions of, um, um, yeah, achieving um, release from the cycle of reincarnation, for example, um, or uh, enlightenment, whatever exactly we take that to mean. Um, um, yeah, so these are different um, different types of projects, and so we we can understand why um, the sort of intellectual system that accompanies these projects would be different. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the um, Bersan section. Um, yeah, let's read. Yeah, why don't we read the whole thing? It's just over a page. Um, so yeah, if I can get a volunteer to read that. I can read. Um, the intuition of the moving and the knowledge of creative evolution. A pure intuition of the moving, the mouvement, according to Bersan, allows us to grasp life in its most profound nature without the obstacle of concepts, which play a pragmatic and utilitarian role, but pluralize and immobilize the real. Logical and conceptual thought corresponds to a knowledge of what is partus in the order of the quantitative and the static. Through a forceful turning back on himself, the philosopher can detach from the habits of language and the mechanized servitude of conceptual thought in order to grasp through intuition the qualitative and dynamic continuities of the deeper self, its freedom and unity. In this sense, we find in Bergson a dualist attitude closely reflecting those of Plato and Plotinus. 
yet it is not the whole of existence and temporality that are rejected in favor of the unique source known through intuition and participation. The equivalent to participation and procession for Bergson is no longer a degradation compelling the philosopher to attach himself to the contemplation of unity and its origin. The unity of the primordial upswelling is preserved in the continuity of life's movement that becomes diversified through matter. Matter itself is like a movement that comes undone. The intuition of the moving is no longer constrained by being absorbed in the pure anticipation of the a priori creative gesture. Leaving the source, intuition accompanies the river's crossing, follows evolution in its development. Since the Elan is a perpetual a priori that remains a source throughout existence. Creation is not localized at the origin, it remains present throughout the stages of becoming, for intuition allows us to grasp evolution as creative. Automatisms and kinds of closure are ordered according to this unique movement that deposits them along its course. Instincts and closed societies are like waters that eddy while the rush of the river's waters continues on. The origin is ever-present. Movement does not produce distance from the origin. It is never cut off from its past, since there is no degradation. In such a doctrine, intuition is a participation in the creative movement of evolution. Knowledge is rendered possible because the subject is recipient of the Elan Vital. He finds himself what exists outside. What is in him is nothing other than the original Elan, now running through the subject. Like a single sentence begun long ago, which, always interrupted by new additions, still remains the same in its lasting duration. At whatever stage of its development, movement is always inchoate. Uh, we could say that movement is a perpetual origin that is prolonged, a permanent anticipation of itself. Similarly, the image, in this case, is not a simple metaphor, nor is intuition purely subjective. As the subject discovers the way in which he participates, he prolongs and continues his participation. He continues evolution, anticipates. Teilhard de Jardin added to the individual or personal dimension of this participation in a creative becoming that of the collective. Since he considers the goal of personal flourishing to be an arbitrary limit reflecting a certain aspect of civilization. The philosophical doctrines of intuition differ over time if we take into account normative ideas. That of Plato proposes stable structures in relation to which amplificatory projections only role is to multiply and cause to exist. The Plotinus is an invitation to ecstasy in the mystical seizure of the one via the principle of procession. Conversion is not necessarily followed by a fallback to temporal existence, as in Plato, who wants the philosopher to be the magistrate of a city with fixed laws, images of numbers. In contrast, Bergson and even more so Teilhard de Chardin take intuition as the starting point for a real participation in the becoming of life through humanity. And yet, the primordial character of the motor content of any a priori image of anticipation, in spite of the fixity of the archetypes, was already latent in Plato. Philosophy is also the knowledge of mixed things, of the indefinite diet 
of the Genesis Eyes Usian. Sorry for my pronunciation of what I assume is not French. According to the philosophical metratique, that's probably Greek, right? Of number ideas. Hence, this philosophical doctrine, replete with a priori images, was able to become quite naturally the inspiration for the highest school of political philosophy of the ancient world and the model for the most audacious reformers. A priori images are fecund, even and especially when they are reinserted in the world as long-term anticipations after the long road. Ten Macron Odon of philosophical thought. Right, yeah, so those are Greek, um, little bits of Greek quotes from, uh, from Plato. Um, so the, yeah, the first one here, uh, Genesis is usian, means, um, uh, I guess, genesis of the essences or of substances. Um, uh, and then ten makran hodon is um, the long road. Yeah, it says that in the text. Um, yeah, the long road um, or the long detour, I guess. Um, yeah, so here um, we have a, sort of the third um, instance of the... Uh, motor image as a philosophical schema of thought. Um, and, and so here, Bechsan is, um, maybe this is like the, the easier one to see um, the, the role of this image as opposed to like in, in Plato, this um, uh, imagery, this motor image is maybe harder to grasp. Um, whereas in, um, in Bechsan, of course, his whole philosophy is all about movement. So we, we can, um, uh, and the, the sort of inner intuition of movement, um, so it's it's easier to see to see this role of the image in uh, Bergson's philosophy than it is in in Plato. Um, uh, but yeah, and so it's it's a somewhat different uh, use of this image because um, uh, so we still have um, this kind of duality between two aspects. We have the 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 sort of inner reality of duration. Uh, and then the the sort of outer reality of um, matter in space, uh, you know, the, the world of extension. Um, but um, they they sort of interact in a way that is different than in Plato, because we have the role of the Elan Vital um, in bringing about evolution of uh, of uh, living beings. So life as a sort of um, uh, inner process brings about the uh, the transformation of entities uh, into um, uh, sort of realization of greater and greater realization of this capacity for um, for sort of autonomous movement uh, and um, <clears throat> yeah so there's this uh, even within the realm of the living there's this kind of duality between uh, automatism and instinct on the one hand and then intelligence on the other hand uh and um um uh so yeah we have this sort of um openness uh in in human beings um this capacity to sort of uh situate ourselves in the the movement of uh of life and then we have uh in insects i think is Bekson exa uh, example um um insects um have this sort of um, automaticity um, they follow these sort of fixed patterns of uh, of uh, behavior um, um, yeah and so these are sort of like the two divergent sides of the living being in, in relation to this uh, 
push uh, this um, current that is life. Um, yeah, and then um, he, the last paragraph here is uh, just sort of a summary of the, the whole section. Um, and it has to do with the, um, the relation between this motor image uh, and um, reality uh, outside of the image, I guess, or outside of the, um, uh, like, we have this anticipatory motor image um, in, in Plato and all these other doctrines. Uh, and then the question is, like, what sort of um, uh, effect does this have on the rest of the world? Uh, and so for Plato, um, it has to do with the, the formation of the city. Um, so we have in the Republic still, we have this doctrine of, uh, you know, the famous doctrine of the ideal city, um, which has the certain, you know, it has the philosopher kings and the um, the um, ratio of the different elements of the city to each other. Each um, aspect of the city corresponds to an element of the soul and so on. Um, so the the idea is a kind of uh, fixed structure. The the goal of the city is to is to generate um, a kind of structure that would not destroy itself in the way that Plato thinks that democracy in uh, in Athens is kind of destroying itself. Um, and uh, whereas for for Bergson, the um, the uh, idea is not so much, uh, or is is uh, kind of opposite in the sense that we we are not trying to produce a fixed um, reality that would remain stable. We're trying to bring about this sort of openness of society. Um, and you know, he contrasts the closed societies and open societies, and he thinks that um, the uh, open societies sort of um, uh, are are open to this uh, sort of inner movement of life in a way that closed societies are not. Um, um, although, of course, every society has a certain uh, aspect of, of closeness and a certain element of openness at, at the same time. Um, but yeah, so uh, what Simon is emphasizing here is that these images, even though they're very um, abstract, um, they are they are used uh, to bring about transformations of reality. So this anticipatory image brings about um, changes of the world, uh, as well as just being a sort of um, intellectual construction. Uh, definitely, this part's like um, so so to the of my questions is magnificent. I think because um, I I now realize that like how like Simondo's idea is like connected to the Plato. Because books on creative evolution, like that's the book, like Alan Alan Vital first came out, and yeah, you know, this idea in a way like also connected to the uh, potential, like uh, uh, Simon Gold's individual theory, like potential, potential, whatever. So yeah, it, 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 this is uh, this this part is like uh, quite good for me. Yeah, uh, there's definitely a lot of. Um... I mean, Simon doesn't talk about uh, Bergson that much, um, but he definitely is um, is very influenced by uh, this whole doctrine of intuition and um, this sort of inner movement. Um, but I think um, he wants to, um, whereas for Bergson, we have this kind of duality of the uh, inner intuition of movement and then the sort of outer reality that is... Uh, um, uh, you know, static. Um, um, I think for Simon Don, he wants to sort of account for this duality as opposed to um, sort of presupposing it in the way that he takes Bergson to do. Uh, so he wants to like show how these two sides themselves 
um, arise out of something that it would be neither uh, inner nor outer. Um, and again, that's very abstract, but like this is sort of Simondon's general um, intellectual strategy is whenever there's a sort of conceptual opposition, you, you try to find a, a sort of um, uh, point um, out of which the two sides of the opposition will arise uh, through some sort of uh, genetic process. Um, so I think he wants to do that same kind of move on this duality that he finds in, in Bergson. Um, and uh, yeah, so this whole theory of the image um, is kind of um, um, related to that move, I think. I think, so, so I think I, 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 I read this whole thing, like, like I'm coming from Bergson, so, so that's the lens I'm reading this whole thing through. And I do think that there is like a case to be made that you can read basically this whole book, at least what I've read of it up to now, as a as an adaptation of the theory of images that Bergson brings in in um, in, in meta and memory, where where the the problem that he tries to resolve is actually in the end like the problem that you just uh, described that in in um, the the essay um, in in time and free will he he kind of has this strict opposition between um, like the, an inner duration and the static um, outside um, and he introduces this theory of images and then goes to the whole thing about contractions that Deleuze loves so much um to to kind of resolve that um and i kind of lost my track where i was going with this because i had a point but now i don't yeah no that's that's good though um yeah um Bersan is definitely very subtle um um and yeah so i i think i oversimplified when i you know gave that sort of opposition between simon don and, and Bersan. um um yeah and i think uh simon don is he's definitely sympathetic to a lot of uh uh, son's ideas, and um, he, I think, sees himself as sort of continuing what Bergson was doing, um, but in a sort of different set of materials, um, you know, drawing from, uh, you know, Bergson's sort of reference point in general is a, um, like, he often operates on, or, you know, uh, creative evolution in particular is, is a drawing on biological reference points, and, and that's sort of, um, uh, I think, maybe the field that he you know felt most uh sort of attracted to or uh, drawn to um where simon don is taking um a physical uh um like a, a, a an image or a, a an analogy drawn from the world of physics uh the crystallization example and then sort of amplifying that into other realms of thought um but yeah with a similar i think goal as um as in Bergson um of sort of grasping the the development uh grasping entities in their becoming as opposed to um grasping them uh as a sort of static um reality that's already given uh and then accounting for the um this duality between the becoming and the static in, itself in terms of becoming yeah i, I think what 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 this book is really doing vis-a-vis -vis, um, um, the Bergson books is uh, like it it does situate um, the theory of images 
well within like the 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 behavioral science of the of of Simondon's time because there are some some problems with with the science that Bergson draws on like that's just like how it goes right in fifty years uh, difference um, and. I think my earlier point was actually to say that the, this method of trying to find a point from which you can differentiate into the into the opposites or antagonisms that um, arise at at at, at first um, is actually kind of where where Simondon and Bergson are the closest to each other because that's that's where where that's kind of the trajectory of 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 um, of, of Bergson's work as well. He, he starts with an analysis that that finds a few few oppositions, and the the um, the larger project becomes always more to find points um, which allow a an account of those oppositions that 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 grasps them as a process of differentiation. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, uh, yeah, it would be, be interesting to sort of go back to Bergson and like with Simondon in mind and sort of see how closely this method uh, sort of maps onto some of the uh, you know some of some of Bergson's books. I, I think maybe Creative Evolution might be the one of the sort of prime examples of this, where he has that sort of duality between instinct and um, uh, and intelligence as um, uh, and then sort of tries to account for how they um, differentiate from each other or, or sort of differentiate from like a, the starting point. Um, um, and yeah, and, and then I guess uh, the two sources of uh, morality and, re and religion uh, would also be another um, another uh, instance of this. Um, yeah, the, the sort of open and closed aspects or, or sides of societies, um, again, you know, as sort of differentiating out of a starting point. Um, so yeah, I think you could definitely do like a, a sort of um, I don't know if it's a Simondonian reading of Bergson or a Bergsonian reading of Simondon, but like sort of mapping them onto each other, um, and that would be uh, yeah an interesting um, project to just to, to take on. Actually, Ber Bergson might have been influenced by like a Darwinism, like almost the same, right? Because like uh, the idea uh, reminded me of um, Darwinian evolution. And then, as Lou also mentioned, like the it, I mean, Bergson's idea definitely like um, tells like how how like a, a differentiation could be generated uh, from the uh, the that's kind of important different point of the Plato's like uh, the good theory. The and then relating to this in relation to this idea, actually in um, in old times, like for example, there is a, a philosopher. Whose name is uh, Democritus, who argued uh, like uh, the atomic theory, um, more scientific like in, in terms of modern science uh, idea existed at that time. But I'm also wondering how and why like uh, Plato's uh, the good theory, some kind of absolute being, dominated like a philosophy at that time. Then um, Democritus or more kind of modern scientific ideas. But at the end of the day, like a Simongdong is like a more kind of like a leaning to the uh, much more scientific idea. I, as far as I think, as far as I think. Yeah, the relationship between um, Bergson and Darwinism is um, 
kind of an interesting and difficult one. Maybe Lou probably could um, comment more on this. But yeah, so he's um, he has an evolutionary doctrine, but it's not a Darwinian evolution. Um, um, but I think he wants to sort of see the Darwinian mechanisms of, of evolution as being sort of one aspect of evolution, but not as sort of um, um, exhausting the reality of evolution. Uh, and, and then it's also interesting that you bring up Democritus because, um, yeah, he has this atomistic doctrine, but he also, uh, well, in the ancient atomists, um, so we see in Lucretius, for example, um, a sort of quasi-evolutionary doctrine as well, where we have this idea that um, organisms sort of form out of like combinations of different organs that sort of, uh, you know, some of them form like these monsters that have like three heads or something that didn't survive. And then the ones that have um, sort of harmonious, well-organized bodies are the ones that did survive. Um, so it's, a, yeah, it's, a, it's a, obviously with very different um, sort of uh, intellectual tools, but it's, it's a sort of uh, analogous to Darwinian arguments around how evolution uh, the sort of mechanism of evolution works through allowing certain um, organisms to survive and reproduce, and then others that um, that uh, don't uh, survive will disappear. Um, so yeah, um, um, I think that yeah, it's a it's a complicated uh, topic um, with a lot of different um, yeah elements that um, are we probably can't really get into too much here. But uh, yeah, it's a good a good question to bring up. Yeah, and, and Lou pointed out in the chat here that um, yeah, it uh, that Bergson's sort of opponent that he's uh, targeting in creative evolution is primarily the sort of uh, Spencer tradition, Herbert Spencer, um, uh, which um, you know what exactly the relationship is between Spencer and Darwin is, is also a, a complicated question because some of Spencer's works I think predate the origin of species um, and. Uh, I, if I'm not mistaken, the phrase survival of the fittest is also uh, from Spencer as opposed to Darwin. Um, but uh, there's also a lot of differences between Darwinian and, and sort of Spencerian evolution um, in terms of like the mechanisms uh, of, of how evolution is supposed to happen and, and so on. Um, so, yeah, it's a uh, um, yeah, fairly complicated topic that I'm sure someone has done a PhD thesis on. Okay, uh, so we're just about at time, and we're at a uh, section break, or a, a break between two parts, actually. So I, I uh, suggest that we stop here. Um, and uh, um, as a reminder, uh, I'm going to be away for the next two weeks, so we're going to take a break uh, until um, hopefully the 30th, April 30th. Um, um, so I should be able to uh, attend the session that week, but if something comes up, I'll... I'll um, post in the the schedule channel. Um, but yeah, so um, if you have like uh, questions about things that you that we've read together over the last couple of weeks, um, you can always put them in the uh, in the the channel on on Discord here. And uh, so I'll, I'll you know I'm traveling, but I still have my laptop, so I can uh, uh, you know try to answer those questions. And uh, it also might be a good opportunity to look at some other Simon Don texts like individuation and um, on the mode of existence of technical objects and try to make connections with what we've been reading and see how they fit fit with um, with those texts as well. So, um, uh, yeah, so I encourage everyone to, um, you know, stay active in the uh, in the uh, Simon Don channel on here. And, um, yeah, if you have questions or comments or whatever, um, 
feel free to add them over the next couple of weeks. Okay, that's a good idea. Thank you so much. Okay, so thanks everyone, uh, and I'll see you in approximately two weeks.